as you are being seated, uh, thank you, Tim. It's awesome. As you're being seated, please turn to First Peter chapter three, verse thirteen. We'll be covering a big section this morning, verses thirteen through twenty-two. And as I was, I was trying to figure out how to um, illustrate this passage this morning, I was reminded a friend of mine had a birthday this week, and our family had long discussions about what we should give to him for his birthday. And so this is what we came up with. Got him a trash can. <laughs> it was not just any trash can, see, because inside we put cash, because my friend always likes to say, cash is king. Now, it's just ones, but still, you know, it's, it, it was a great gift. This is an illustration of a blessing in disguise, right? We all face these in our lives, blessings in disguise. You have that ache or pain. You go in to have it checked out in the doctor, and it turns out that it gives you a diagnosis of something that was more serious, and you're able to take care of it. Or that job that you really wanted that you didn't get, and God opens the door for another job, a better job. Or that guy that you wanted to ask you out, and he doesn't, and you have a better one ask you out. Or that girl who says no, and another one comes along. Blessings in disguise. Difficult to see at first. We don't see it. All we see is the trash can. And it takes time for us to open up and see, wow, there's actually a blessing in there. This morning, Peter is going to talk to us about an incredible blessing that we have received. It just happens to be very well disguised. I want us to read together, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. The disguise is this. Live well and suffer for it. The audience to whom Peter is writing are really working hard to live well. They've identified themselves with Jesus Christ and they're trying to have all of their behavior correspond to that relationship with Jesus Christ. They have identified with the creator of the universe who has conquered sin and death, but they don't seem to be experiencing his victory. As a matter of fact, it seems like they're getting defeated in this life. If you want to, circle chapter 3, verse 13, because it marks a major transition in the book of 1 Peter. Peter, up until this point, has been talking about the way that the world should work. The righteous should succeed and prosper, and the wicked should be punished. This is the way the world should work. Look at verse 13 again. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It's a rhetorical question. The answer should be no one. No one should harm you. People should bless you. But the world doesn't always work out that way, does it? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. He says this is the way the world actually works so much of the time. The righteous suffer, and it seems like the unrighteous are blessed. What they're experiencing particularly in this setting is slander. They're behaving well, but they're being slandered and reviled. And in the future, they are going to probably experience the seizure of their property, imprisonment, and some of them even death. 
They're suffering for living well. Now, this last week, I read uh, a news story. I, l- I love reading the news. I, I, I'm a news junkie. So I was reading the news, and I like these, these weird, quirky stories that uh, often don't make the headlines. And I came across a story about a 31-year-old woman who has uh, now been taken to court because she advertised at her church on her church's bulletin board for a Christian roommate. Okay? So she's being taken to court because she has violated a law, a Fair Housing Act. She's violated this non-discrimination law. And so I think it is the, the Michigan Department of Civil Rights has a case filed against her for advertising at her church on her church's bulletin board for a Christian roommate. She's discriminating. It's amazing, isn't it? It's true. And this is what uh, the director, Nancy Haynes, she said this. The woman could face several hundreds of dollars in fines and fair housing training so it doesn't happen again. <laughs> I just, you know, who knows what's going to happen in this case? I would hope it'll just be thrown out of the court. But Christians, we're going to get more and more and more and more of that in the world. We're going to. We're going to face more and more a clash of cultures and values in the world. We should expect it. We should anticipate it. What we're facing here in this country at this point in time is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters face throughout the world. Let me read you one story. This is from uh, The Voice of the Martyrs. I encourage you to get on their website periodically. It reminds you of what's happening in the world. 17-year-old girl in the Guido region of Somalia was severely beaten by her family recently after they discovered she had converted to Christianity. Nurta Muhammad Farah, 17, was later taken to a doctor who prescribed medication for a, quote, mental illness, unquote. When she refused to abandon her Christian faith, her family forced her to take the medication. Nurta has been shackled to a tree during the day and held in a small dark room at night because she has trusted in Jesus Christ. And today, Christians will lose their freedom and they'll lose their lives because they've chosen to identify with Jesus Christ. And Peter says outrageously, this is blessing. It's a blessing that is very well disguised. What does he mean? Let me begin in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Uh, You're actually blessed. God's favor is upon the afflicted. Uh, Peter learned this principle from Jesus. If you were with us last year, we covered uh, the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. In particular, we focused a, a major section of our time on the Sermon on the Mount, on the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are you, and then he lists a whole bunch of paradoxical ideas. Blessed are those who mourn and those who weep. In particular, in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Okay, Peter is using exactly the same terminology. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Uh, blessing doesn't mean happiness. Because blessing is something that's far more profound than merely happiness. It's not something that is wrapped up in our day-to-day circumstances and what we experience. It means the favor of God is upon us. We know that our life, life is approved by God. Because we're following the pattern of Jesus Christ. 
who suffered first, then he received his reward. And when we suffer, it's a validation that we have chosen well. We've chosen the right life. People are rejecting us because we've identified with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, because Jesus Christ has been victorious, we also will be victorious. And so Peter and Jesus are trying to teach us to live for that day and not for the present. And what Peter is going to do for us is he's going to give us three proofs. Because we don't feel blessed when we're suffering. He's going to give us three proofs. This is how he's going to prove that, in fact, there is blessing in suffering. The first proof is this. For Jesus... Persecution ended in vindication and suffering. Peter's going to take us back to the example of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18 with me. He says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He says, Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, or a better translation is once and for all. This is what the writer of Hebrews talks about. There was one sacrifice that was a full and final payment for all sins for all time, once and for all. Jesus didn't have to die multiple times, just once, and it would accomplish everything. The just, the sinless one, for the unjust, that is for us. Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross because he was guilty. The greatest injustice that has ever occurred in the history of mankind was perpetrated against the Son of God himself, and he allowed it to be. He wasn't forced to go to the cross. He allowed himself to be crucified. He sacrificed himself on our behalf. But he didn't stay dead. And this is Peter's point. This is the point of the passage. He was put to death in the flesh or in the body, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Jesus won. Okay, if you remember anything from this message, Peter's point is this. Jesus won. And the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ won. There is no image of Jesus on our cross because he's not there. It reminds us of his sacrifice and it reminds us of his resurrection. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose. Jesus won. And because you're identified with Jesus Christ, you'll win too. Okay? Now, Peter gets a little tricky here. And I personally, I will tell you, I love passages like this that are really difficult to understand. They present a challenge. I want you to notice, he says, Jesus Christ was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit, in which, that is, in the spirit, he also went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison. Now, you probably read that passage before and thought, what in the world is he talking about, okay? Uh, When did Jesus go? Where did he go? Who did he talk to? Who are these spirits? And what did he say? Hey, let's try to unravel this a little bit. And I want you to keep in mind the context is Peter's making the point. Jesus suffered first and then he won. And that is the pattern for life. Okay. Interpretive options here. Let me give you three. First, uh, a long-standing historical option was that Noah, as a preacher of righteousness, was filled with the spirit of Christ. And so he preached to the people in his day. God's coming judgment, and they could be rescued from that if they would get into the ark. That's one option. Spirit of Christ empowering Noah in Noah's day. But I don't think that fits the timing of this. Second option. Jesus went during his three days in the grave, and he went and preached to those people who had died in the flood, and he proclaimed 
something, maybe his victory, obviously not a second chance. Because Hebrews tells us it's appointed for man to die once. After this comes the judgment. You have to believe in this lifetime. So maybe he went and proclaimed his victory to those who had died in the flood. Third option. Jesus went, and he went to the demonic spirits who were leading people astray in Noah's day. And he proclaimed his victory over them. I think that that is the interpretation that fits best in the context. I want you to notice a couple things. First, turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter again references Noah. 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. What's he talking about? I thought that Fallen angels were demons and they were out in the world working and tempting. Well, many of them are. But some, as it says in Jude, abandon their proper abode. And as a result, God said, you're out of play. Okay? You don't get to be out doing your tempting business. Because they're only allowed to operate within the rules that God has set. Remember in the book of Job, Satan comes and he has to ask permission. May I do such and such temptation? May I act in such and such way in the world? God allows him to do so. Well, apparently there's a group that didn't play according to God's rules. And so what happened to them is they are removed. Okay, keep your place here in Second Peter because I want to keep reading that. Let me read to you this passage in Jude. It's Jude. There's only one chapter, so it's chapter 1, verse 6. It says, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Apparently there is a a section of hell, which remember hell is not fully occupied yet. It was designed for the fallen angels and for Satan. It's not occupied, not until the judgment. But there is a section of it in which he has put these angels who abandoned their proper abode and went out and did whatever they wanted to do. God said, you're you're out of business. Again, 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In verse 9, here's his point. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. I think Peter is talking about the spirits in Noah's day that led people in rebellion against God. And what he is alluding to is this passage in Genesis chapter 6. And I want you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to try to answer a hard passage with an even harder passage. Genesis chapter 6. Remember, Peter is alluding to Noah's day. And he's alluding to what's happening on the earth in Noah's day. And he's using that as an illustration of suffering and then vindication. Okay? Or persecution and then vindication. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years, and he limited the lifespan of mankind because men were getting more and more and more wicked on the earth. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, probably, and I don't have 100% confidence in this interpretation, but probably what he's talking about is there are angels who abandoned 
their proper permitted function in the world, and they cohabitated with human women, and they made a race that was exceedingly evil. Probably. That's what he's talking about. It could just be that these angelic forces were deceiving men, human men, and causing them to cohabitate and creating this exceedingly wicked race. The point is these demons are not doing what God has allowed and permitted, and they have created a race that is leading the rebellion against God on earth. And so this is the condition of things. Chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? We think things are bad in our day, in our culture. They were, wow, they were even much worse in Noah's day. So bad, in fact, that God looks about out on the entire human population and he can only find one righteous man. Yeah, obviously the population was smaller at that point in time, but imagine if God looks out Bryan College Station, Texas, and he can only find one person who has a soft heart toward him who wants to follow him and worship him, who wants to make his name great. Everybody else is completely corrupt and evil. Imagine if you looked out on the whole state of Texas and you only could find one person, or all of the United States, and there was only one person. Okay, that's what it's like in Noah's day. It's exceedingly corrupt. And that is what Peter is referencing. And what he's saying is, I believe, that after Jesus Christ's resurrection, he had 40 days on earth. But he wasn't just on earth. He was going and he was showing himself to his disciples, but he had other business to attend to. God intended that he would go around and particularly to the angelic forces, he would proclaim his victory. I won. And Peter uses this absolute extreme example. He says, Jesus went even all the way to the pit of hell, that section that's reserved for the fallen angels who've abandoned their proper abode. He went even there and said, I won. And you lost. And Peter's point is this. Jesus suffered first, but his suffering led to absolute victory, even to the very pits of hell. Jesus won. And this is the pattern that God has established. Suffering leads to victory, and suffering leads to vindication. Okay. Now, turn with, back with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 again. Okay. Peter moves specifically to this proclamation into an illustration from Noah's life. Okay. For Noah, persecution ended in deliverance and vindication. Okay. The same pattern applied. Okay. In the spirit, Jesus Christ went and he made proclamations to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. His reference to Noah, uh, it's not accidental, it's not arbitrary. Noah stood throughout biblical literature, throughout all Jewish literature, as a paradigm for the way that God interacts with a broken and fallen and sinful world. Noah is a paradigm, and there's some things that are characteristic of the way that God works with Noah that he works with the rest of the world. First is this, the wicked always outnumber the righteous. It's true in our country, it's true throughout the world, the result is what? The wicked are usually in charge. 
and the righteous are persecuted and suffer. It was true in Noah's day. It's true in our day. Second, God is always patient towards sinners. You notice he says, they once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. God waited and waited and waited. The construction of the ark took a long time. And what was Noah doing? He was preaching righteousness. He was saying, repent, escape, escape from God's judgment that's about to fall on the world because God is patient. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. It says, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of the creation. What's he mean? He says, the righteous are still suffering. And that's how it's always been. And God's never going to set it right. It's not going to happen. These mockers are going to come and they're going to discourage you. And Peter is writing to people who are discouraged by this. He goes on, he says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded by water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient because he longs for people to be reconciled to him. True in the days of Noah, true in our day. Third, God will ultimately set all things right. God will deliver the righteous and he will punish the wicked. And if you want to be rescued... All you have to do is believe. Noah believed God. And so he built an ark. And there is Noah out in the midst of a waterless place building a huge boat. And neighbors are coming by. And what are they doing? They're mocking him. They're slandering him. And so what does Noah do? Well, he lays down his hammer and saw and he preaches to them. Okay? And he preaches righteousness and they slander him and they slander him and they slander him and no one believes him. No one responds to his message. And so the rains begin to come and what does Noah do? He climbs into the ark. God shuts the door. The waters of judgment come down, but Noah is delivered because he is safe inside the ark and he is delivered through the water. The sun comes back out and Noah is vindicated because everyone else is destroyed. But he suffered first. And because of his belief, he got into the ark and he was delivered through the waters of judgment and God vindicated him. And that is, Peter's saying, the pattern. That's the pattern. Now, third, for us, persecution will end in final victory and vindication. Let's back up again. Jesus Christ went in the spirit and made proclamation to the spirits, those fallen angels, the demons who had abandoned their proper abode and they were kept in prison. Specific group who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God 
having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Angels and authorities and powers is a New Testament nomenclature for the fallen hierarchy. And after he had been resurrected, he proclaimed victory over them, and then God took him and vindicated him and seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and a power and authority, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those who are in heaven and on earth and where? Under the earth. All will bow to the name of Jesus Christ. He won. He's king. Now, let's back up. How does that relate to our experience? He says, corresponding to that, that is corresponding to what happened with Noah. Baptism now saves you. Oh, put on the brakes. <laughs> that doesn't fit very well in our theology, does it? Baptism saves us? I thought we were saved by grace through faith, faith alone and Christ alone. Okay, we're going to have to solve a couple things. First, what does he mean by baptism? And then in what sense does this baptism save us? Okay, well, hang with me. Baptism, uh, it's a transliterated word. The Greek word is baptizo, and they just took the Greek letters and found English letters that fit. It's not a translation. It's what's called a transliteration. What does it mean? Well, literally it meant to submerge. So a ship that's sailing along, gets struck by the storm, breaks up, and it is baptized into the deep. Okay? It submerges. That's literally what it meant. Piece of cloth that was put into the dye was baptized into the dye. It was submerged. That's literally what it meant. It came to take on a figurative meaning as well, which was identification with. So the ship lost its independent identity and became identified with the deep. It no longer was floating on the top. Now it was identified with the deep. The cloth was submerged into the dye and it took on the identity of the dye. The identities were united. So it came to have this figurative meaning of identification with. In the religious realm, it took on this figurative meaning as well. If I agreed with a message that was spoken, or if I wanted to identify myself with a group of people and their values and their beliefs and their lifestyle, I would get baptized into that group. So the Qumran community that were separatists, and they didn't like the way things were working in the temple in Jesus' era, and the unholiness and the political rivalry they saw there, they separated and they would get baptized to join that community. They were identifying with that community. People heard John the Baptist preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You want to participate in the kingdom? This is what needs to happen in your life. You need to get it back in line with the law. People heard that and they said, that's right, I identify with that message. And so they got baptized by John. Jesus got baptized by John. Why? Well, he was identifying with the message of John. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, I'm the king. Okay, so baptism came to signify identification with. And when a Christian is baptized, they're identifying themselves with Jesus Christ. Okay. Let me give you one passage here that illustrates. Romans chapter 6. You read the whole section. I just narrowed it down to a few verses. Paul wrote, For if we have become united with him, or identified with him, okay, linked to him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Jesus' death counts for us. Jesus' resurrection counts for us. 
because we've been identified with him. And so Paul talks about this concept, develops this concept of spiritual baptism. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, God's spirit takes you and puts you into Christ. You are identified with Christ. His death counts for you. His resurrection counts for you. And so the physical act of baptism is just a physical symbol of a deeper spiritual reality. You come into the water and you are buried with Jesus Christ. The waters of judgment flood over you. But you don't stay in the grave, do you? Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Buried with him in baptism, raised up to new life. His resurrection counts for you as well. You're completely identified with him. So the water of judgment comes upon you, but you're in Christ, so you're safe. You don't stay in the grave. And you come up out of the waters of judgment, just like Noah and his family got into the ark. The waters of judgment came. They were delivered safely through the water. It says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Each of those are a picture of this more profound spiritual reality. And so what Peter is talking about here is he's talking about both water baptism, and the spiritual reality behind water baptism. Okay, Hang with me. He's talking about both water baptism and, more significantly, the spiritual baptism that's behind it. The reason for that is, in the New Testament, as soon as a person believed, they got dunked. Okay? Just the, the chronology of it was this. They believed and they found water. That's that's what they did. So in Peter's mind, there wasn't this separation between the physical act of baptism and the spiritual reality that preceded it. I want you to keep your place here in 1 Peter and turn back to the book of Acts with me. Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Philip has just come upon uh, the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. He doesn't understand it, but he's seeking after God. Verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Boom. It's like, well, hey, there's water. How about now? I, I want to publicly say that I believe. I want to publicly say that I'm identifying myself with Jesus Christ and that God's Spirit has identified me with him. He has united me with him. So how about now? Okay, it just happened just like that. Now turn to Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Uh, Peter is speaking to Cornelius and Cornelius' household, Gentile household. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message which is also called the baptism of the Spirit in other places. Spirit falls upon them. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Thought it was just for us. And they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they stayed with him. For a few days, and they taught them more and more and more. Okay, boom. We can't say they can't be baptized, right? Because obviously they're already believers in Jesus Christ. Because the mark of a Christian is the possession of the Spirit. So water baptism doesn't give you eternal life. Water baptism does not regenerate you. 
Water baptism is a symbol of the deeper and more profound and prior spiritual reality of being united with Christ. So, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, that is, baptize with water, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In other words, he's saying getting baptized with water is not a part of the gospel. So if someone is never baptized, it doesn't mean that they don't have eternal life. That's not what it means. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ died for your sins and he was raised victorious, proving that God accepted his sacrifice for your sins. And if you believe in him, you are united with him. You receive eternal life as a result. The dead is removed and you have life with God because Christ has life with God that's never-ending and cannot be separated. All you have to do is believe. Then the normal response to that is, I want to publicly show that I have believed. And in Peter's mind, there was no separation. Let me give you a modern example. Okay, in our culture, uh, North American culture, modern day, when a couple gets married, they come in and we map out the ceremony. And this is how it usually plays out. They've, they've done uh, extensive research and they've spent tons of their parents' money. And you know they want to make the day special. This is, this is the wedding day, right? So they come down and a father uh, will say, I'll say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Uh, her mother and I, her family and I, the bride is given to the groom. They're not married yet because I have to talk to him a little bit. I've got to lecture him a little bit about, you know, here's marriage and this is what you need to do. And, you know, get real um, legalistic at that point and tell him do this and do that. And don't do this, whatever. No, I don't, I don't do that, actually, if you want me to do your wedding. So they come up and I give them a little lecture. And then it's time for them to exchange vows and exchange their rings. They're going to make promises to each other and then they're going to give their, each other a token of this covenant relationship. Now imagine if they get up there, I give them their little lecture, and they say, you know, we are getting married today, but let's, we'll just do the vows and the rings later. In our culture, we say, wait a second. Vows and rings, that's just, that's just part of the package. That's just part of the package. Somebody asks me, Brian, are you married? I can just go, yeah. I can just point to my ring. That, that ring is not marriage. And that ring doesn't make me married. But in our culture, if I'm wearing this ring on my left hand, people say, oh, he's married. Because it's a symbol of the profound commitment that we've made to one another, the relationship. And the symbol represents that. So it is with baptism. Getting dunked or sprinkled or anything like that at any point in your life doesn't make you have eternal life. But it's a symbol of that. And as a result, every Christian should go through this act as a believer. I believe in Jesus Christ. I have believed. He is mine and I am his. I identify with his death and his burial, but also with his resurrection. I have life and I want the world to know that. When a believer did this in the New Testament, what happened? Start the suffering. (laughs) As soon as they identified with Jesus Christ, they would begin to suffer. And as they're suffering, they're wondering to themselves, wait a second, I thought Jesus Christ was victorious, and instead I'm experiencing defeat. And what Peter says to them is, no, the suffering is actually a sign that you have chosen well. You've chosen rightly because Jesus suffered, and then he was vindicated. Noah was persecuted, and then he was vindicated. And your persecution proves that you are identified with Jesus Christ. It's suffering first, then your vindication. It's not a sign that we've lost. It's a sign of victory. 
So don't be afraid of identifying with Jesus Christ. Notice again, back here, 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Jesus Christ is now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Jesus won. Okay, Jesus won. And someday he's going to come back and he's going to set all things right and he's going to prove it. In the meantime, he has foreordained that his people would, in fact, suffer in this world so that they'd be pointed to the pattern of the life of Christ. And really, this is the dominant theme of the entire book of 1 Peter. Identify yourself fully with Jesus Christ. So how do we respond then? when we're undergoing persecution and we're suffering. Well, that's what we're going to talk about next week. What Peter's going to say is, don't be afraid. But be ready to respond, but not harshly. Okay? Because the reason that God has left us here on earth is not to win every argument, nor is it to run away from every battle, but it is to represent Christ. And so my question for you this morning is simply this. Are you willing to absolutely and completely and fully identify yourself with Jesus Christ, even if that means suffering in this life? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of experiencing rejection or condescension or loss but that we would look upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us and we would see the pattern of his life and we would live like Christ. Father, I pray that this week, uh, if any of us should happen to undergo persecution, that you'd bring this passage to mind. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.